0: So we are in caring for Hagar, and here is the main point that I want you guys to think about as we go through the service this morning. While God is working to rescue creation through the seed line of the Savior, He is dealing especially with Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and they're chosen for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to bring about this Messiah. But God's election of and preoccupation with Israel is not equivalent to an abandonment of the other nations and peoples. God is still the God of his whole creation, and he is working through Israel to rescue the whole world, not just Israel. And so God's care for Hagar shows that he has not abandoned all non-Jews, but the promise of a savior will not come through this line of Hagar. Hagar is not a direct line to the Abrahamic covenant. She is adjacent to it. Like other nations, she'll be blessed through it. And she even gets to sit under the blessing of being uh, a part of this people to whom belong the Abrahamic covenant. She in this way is very much like the Samaritans, who lived between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. Not really part of either, but in this awkward limbo between. And as we'll see, God interacts with Hagar much the same way as he interacts with a Samaritan woman in John 4. God steps in here and blesses Hagar. Her blessing through the Abrahamic covenant is one thing, but she's been promised falsely by Sarai and Abram that she would be the mother of this chosen son, through whom all of these blessings would be given. And so God specifies to her and details what exactly are her blessings. And one thing we'll see in this is land is not part of her blessing. Her children do not own a plot of land anywhere. In fact, we see that they're wanderers. The wilderness is going to be their home, and they'll even reject cities and states and nations and We'll see a lot of turmoil in their descendants' line. But nonetheless, she is promised the blessing of many, many, many descendants. But as we begin, we meet a new character. He's actually not new. This is just a different name for him, a different way of identifying who he is. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the first instance in Scripture where we see him, but he returns again and again, most often in connection with the Abrahamic covenant. Here this angel of the Lord finds Hagar. He finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and that spring of water is on the way to Shur. The angel of the Lord will appear again in Genesis 22, and he appears to Abram, and he calls to him from heaven and says, Abram, Abram, and Abram says, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, Elohim, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is the angel of the Lord speaking, and he says, Abram, you have not withheld your son from me. The angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Yahweh. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. As the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. There is something very different about this angel than every other angel in scripture. In fact, we meet an angel in Revelation who twice tells us, do not equate me with God. And yet this angel does. In fact, if this angel is not God, then he is doing the same thing that Satan did in his fall. An angel elevating himself to the level of God and declaring his manifesto of I will. Only God has the right to do this. Only God has the right to say, I will do this. I will do this. I will swear by myself. I am Yahweh. We meet this angel of God again in an encounter with Jacob, particularly when he is in Laban's house, having been abused in this foreign land, cheated, and he is about to be sent back to the promised land the angel of god said to me in the in a dream jacob and i said here i am and he said lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped speckled and mottled for i have seen all that laban has been doing to you now remember that as we go through this passage god has seen this affliction of jacob god has seen how he has been cheated of what he was promised and god says To Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. Now remember what Bethel means. I am the God of the house of God. Where you anointed a pillar. Where you made a vow to me. Now Jacob didn't make any vow to an angel. Jacob made a vow to the one true God of Israel. So he says, now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Go back to the promised land. In Exodus 3.2, Moses also meets this angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. And then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, there are some who will try to say that this angel of the Lord is Gabriel, who is particularly concerned with the fulfillment of God's covenant promises with Israel. But I don't think there's any way to read these scriptures, these statements that this angel makes, and see that he is anything but a member of the Godhead. He is part of the Trinity. He is the one true God of Israel. And he has come down to meet his chosen people. But in this case, in Genesis 16, he has come down to meet one who has been promised by one of the promised people to be a part of it when she is not. And this is the first time he appears in this way. In Exodus, this angel of the Lord who speaks from the burning bush continues and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He's seen it. He's paid attention to it. I have given heed to their cry or I have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. Keep these things in mind because this is what he will say to Hagar as well. And I think this is why Moses records this account for us and why he records it for the children of Israel so that we can see the character and the nature of the God who has rescued them from Egypt. But in Exodus 3.10, after he meets Moses and he meets him in the wilderness of Midian, he says, go back to Egypt. Go back to the affliction that you're under because I have a purpose for you there. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, Pharaoh who he was running from, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God has a tendency to do this. He will encourage, but he will send us into the very thing we're running from. He does this with Israel. He is about to do this with Hagar. And as we'll see with Hagar, she's offered a promise, a blessing, but she is told, submit yourself back to Sarai. One thing we're not told in Scripture is that she continued to be abused by Sarai. We don't see that. We see that Sarai is still very bitter about this situation, but we don't see abuse from Sarai like we saw a few verses ago. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What I'm claiming in these scriptures is that the angel of the Lord is this very person, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead. We see that he is distinguished at times from Yahweh. He is the angel of Yahweh. Angel is also an interesting word. We think of it as these celestial beings that are less than God, not part of the human race, but a similar cognizant being. But that's not even the most common usage of this word Malach, in Hebrew. The first most common usage of Malach is simply a messenger who is human. Any human messenger we meet in the Old Testament usually uses this term Malach. He is a messenger who carries a message from one to another. Second, we see messengers from God one of their primary uses in scriptures is human messengers from God. Prophets, priests, but also we even see the wind as a messenger from God in Psalm 104.4. It's not until we get to the third usage that we see heavenly messengers, particularly angels or angelic beings. And within those, down at the very bottom, letter D, Malek, Elohim or Malek, Yahweh, the angel of God or the angel of the Lord. This is a special use of the term angel, and it's making use of this idea of a messenger. One who is bringing the word of God to his people. This is Jesus in his office of prophet. This office that he had up until the crucifixion, when he became a priest on our behalf. This is how he became so much higher than the angels in name. Because he is the angel of God, the messenger of God, who is no created being. He is the one true God of Israel. He is the promised Messiah, but he is not yet taken on flesh. And he has come down in order to speak, interestingly enough here, not to Abram. Not to the father of the race through whom he would come, but to Hagar, one who has been despised and rejected similarly to the way that he will be. Like I said, this bears striking similarities with Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan. Also similarities with the Syrophoenician woman, again a Gentile. And I think we can see Jesus' own character. We can recognize him from the Old Testament when we see him now in the New. When he's taken on flesh and he's given this name Jesus or Yeshua, salvation, he is still the same person. He is still the same God. And he meets this woman, Hagar, at the well, just like he'll meet the woman at the well at the base of Mount Gerizim thousands of years later. This woman who is low in status, we see her fetching water in the middle of the day, not in the cool of the day. Even among women, she is despised and rejected. This woman who has partial ties to the Jewish covenants, but no firm tie. She is really in a gray area. Am I Jewish? Am I a Gentile? The Jews say I'm a Gentile. The Gentiles say I'm a Jew. That was the state of the Samaritans. They had been infused with Assyrian blood, and now nobody wanted them. But God still has a special purpose for them. And in fact, when God begins to send out messengers to preach the gospel of salvation, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, he doesn't first go to the Greeks. After the Jewish people, the first group that he opens salvation to is the Samaritans. This is Acts 10, before, or Acts 8, before Acts 10, when he meets Cornelius and the first Gentiles become part of the church. God has a special purpose and a special place in his heart for the despised and rejected. And so he has come down to meet Hagar, and he meets her while she's fleeing from God's chosen people. He says to Hagar, he calls her by name. He knows who she is. Again, very similar to what Christ does with the woman at the well. He knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly what she's doing. He knows exactly why she is where she is. But he asks her anyways. He says, Hagar, Sarai's maid. He knows what she's running from. Where have you come from and where are you going? Sarai is not going to give an answer to both of these. She will give an answer to the first one. Where have you come from? She says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. But we know where she's fleeing to, and God knows where she's fleeing to, because where does he meet her? In the wilderness, by a spring, on the way to Shur. And we know where that is. It's almost all the way from he- uh, Hebron back to Egypt. Where did she come from? It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman or that the woman was very beautiful, that Sarai. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants. And female donkeys and camels. She's just lumped in there with a bunch of animals and wealth. So, this woman who was sold in Egypt to this foreigner, taken out of the land, and once she's out of that land, promised an abundance of wealth, the promises of the one true God. And then she's abused, she's sent running. She's fleeing back to Egypt, the persecution she knows at least. This is a lot like Israel. They would much rather return to the persecution they knew than face radical dependence on God. Numbers fourteen two. all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Would that we had died in this wilderness. It would have been better for us had we just died there than to be dragged out here because why? They're looking at going back into the promised land and the enemies in that land look just too big, too big for God to handle. They're not depending on God. They don't trust him. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That was the Kadesh Barnea incident where Israel finally crosses the point of no return for the first generation coming out of the Exodus, and they do not get to enter the land. In verse 14 of this chapter, we're told that this happened between Kadesh and Bered. When we get there, we'll see that this is a very large swath of land, almost the entire Sinai Peninsula. Moses could have been far more specific about where this event occurred, but he ties in the Kadesh event. He ties this in because this very event speaks to Israel, the generation that came out of Egypt the generation to whom Genesis was written, in order to encourage them that this land is theirs and God will give it to them. And so when they see Hagar, one who is not of God's chosen people, being protected on her way back to the promised land, how much more should it encourage the children of Israel to whom the land belongs? But she is told, return not to the land she will go back to the land but the direction of her return is to her mistress back to subjection under sarai who had been abusing her not only that but she says or he says to submit yourself to her authority literally to submit yourself under her hand which is exactly what abram had said to sarai behold your maid is in your power or literally Your maid is in your hands. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. God is telling Sarai to, or is telling Hagar, go back to that. This is a tough pill to swallow. And God is going to bless Hagar for doing this. And Sarai is going to meet 13 more years of barrenness and the seeming rejection from her husband, who willingly welcomes this new son and enjoys him so much that he's willing to say, God, can't you work through this one instead of one through Sarai? Can't this one be the heir? Imagine how that would hit Sarai. Though Hagar is the one returning to bondage here, Sarai is the one who is going to have to be dealt with by God. God is going to protect Hagar. Hagar is not going to last forever in the land. She is going to be sent out, but that's a different event. This one, God is saying, I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you. You are not rejected. But he does tell her to return and submit. And now, if this is a tough pill to swallow, what is coming is going to be almost an impossible promise to believe, but it is going to be of incredible encouragement to her. And we've seen this as well. We've seen this at the fall, when God curses or gives the curse to the man and the woman. It comes also with a promise, a promise of a savior. And what we see them hold on to is that promise of a savior. Yes, they understand the troubled circumstances they're in now, but they understand that God is going to work to fix it. Here, we see that magnified. We see that God has given Hagar a very tough pill to swallow, but the promises that she is getting, she will hold on to. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. This sounds pretty familiar, right? The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. He says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. God says, or He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, and if you are able to count them, He said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now remember, God has tied Israel's promise of a multitude of descendants to fixed orders of nature, orders that cannot disappear. He doesn't give the same thing to Hagar. He doesn't tie it to the stars, he doesn't tie it to the dust. But He does tell her, that when you count your children, they will have to be counted by multitudes, not by individuals. That's literally here what the Hebrew says. They will be too many to count means when they're counted, they'll be counted this multitude, that multitude, that multitude. Too many to count. This is not the Abrahamic covenant though. This is a different promise to Hagar. And it reflects some aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, but only so far as God can give to Hagar, because the true blessing is still going to come through the Abrahamic covenant to her, not as a direct recipient, but as an adjacent recipient. When Israel receives their blessing, their land, their Messiah, Hagar will be blessed 10 times, actually, can't even quantify how much more she will be blessed by the Abrahamic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant will not be fulfilled through her. In Genesis twelve seven, God promises to Abram, to your descendants I will give this land. No such promise is made to Hagar. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. In verse 14 of chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see and I will give it to you and your descendants forever. No such promise to Hagar. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. This does mirror Hagar, but as soon as it comes to the land promise, it does not. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Perfect tense, it belongs to them now. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, as we will see, when we get to God's prophecy of where the children of Hagar will live, it is the same location, but it does not belong to them. They will live in tents as wild animals, but they will not own the land. That is God's promise to Hagar. Her descendants would be a great multitude. Right now she's pregnant, She will give birth to that child. That child will be blessed with children. But then he gives a prophecy first directly to her about her own circumstances and then to her descendant. Because one thing we see in the promise line of Abram is while there is an immediate child, there is always a future child being looked for. There is always one who is going to fulfill that promise the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. For Hagar, the fulfillment of her promise is in her direct son. There is no future son to be looked forward to. There will be descendants, but there is no one descendant that is promised as a promised seed. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Does this sound familiar to anyone? The angel Gabriel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. The reason Mary is found with child is because she's found favor with God. The reason Hagar is, is because the Lord has heard her affliction. The Lord has seen her abuse, and he is blessing her. But this is the fulfillment of her promise, this child, Ishmael. The fulfillment of the promise to Abram is finally seen in this child, Jesus. There is a near fulfillment in Isaac, but the far fulfillment of that promise of an eternal descendant is in Jesus. We could say this pattern matches the cap on the fulfillment. Abram or Hagar's is immediate, but the descendant that comes through Abram by means of Sarai has a far more extensive blessing. A far more extensive title. He is the sought seed from the very beginning. Because the angel Gabriel here continues where the angel of the Lord to Hagar did not. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is not a tribe of wanderers, but God establishing his kingdom through this line, in this land, with this chosen line. Hagar will be blessed more through Abram's covenant than her own with God. And it goes all the way back to Genesis twelve three. this promise that in you, in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Hagar should be looking forward to the seed line of Abram even more than she's looking forward to her own son. But now the Lord gives her a prophecy about her child. She knows her immediate future, but what is her distant future through her descendants? The angel of the Lord said to her, further behold, whoops, this is the same one. Okay, we'll talk about this first. You shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael is a sentence in Hebrew. They would do this quite often. In fact, we'll see this multiple times even in this passage. Ishmael means God has heard. She gives the reason, or he gives the reason, why this child should be named Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. So that through her child, she'll remember this interaction with God. Jesus was given the name Jesus, Yeshua, because Yoshia in Hebrew means salvation. So we can remember and they can remember that through this one comes the salvation of the world. God's going to name Abram's child Laughter, Isaac, because both he and Sarai laughed at the notion that God would fulfill this promise. Interesting that these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, one demonstrates the lack of faith of the parents. It's a chide on them. But God's name for Hagar's son represents his own faithfulness to her. Remember in Exodus three seven. What God said to Moses, he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry. I've heard their cry. I've heard their affliction because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. God continues his prophecy about this descendant of Hagar, He will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, this is a very clean translation of this compared to others, and the commentaries love going on talking about, is this a derogatory comment on Hagar's son? And in a way, it is, yes. This is not necessarily a compliment, but it is a statement of fact. God does not necessarily cause this to be this way. This is a statement of how it will be. In case we're wondering what a wild donkey of a man looks like, Job, whose book was written around the same time, describes to us the similarities between wild donkeys and men. He says, Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity as bread for their children in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field and glean the vineyard of the wicked, They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They are wet with the mountain rains and hug the rock for want of a shelter. This is a Bedouin lifestyle. This is a nomadic lifestyle. Now, that was Job's explanation. God mirrors this explanation later on in Job 39. He says, Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I give the wilderness for a home and the salt land for a dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He doesn't want to live there. He has no use for it, no purpose for it. The the shoutings of the drivers he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. there's another passage connected with these nomadic peoples in Isaiah 13, 19 through 20. And this is kind of just a a bird trail real quick. It says, Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This is when God is finally going to destroy Babylon. It says, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tents there will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. They are going to become such a staple of the landscape that their absence indicates the end of the world. The end of the world as we know it. In fact, this is even a greater prophecy than the destruction of Damascus. Damascus, it says, will never be inhabited again. It says that Babylon, when it is finally destroyed, no one will even set up a tent there. Damascus, no one's going to build houses there. Not even a tent will be pitched in Babylon. It will become a place of wild animals where people will not go. Well, this is the kind of donkey that they're talking about. It's called an onager, and it's unique to that that area in the Middle East. Ironically, it is one of the main means of transport besides recently cars. Camels were introduced later on into this land, but as far as we know, these donkeys have always been there. In fact, this is a Bedouin Arab on that donkey near Petra. Here's some of the tents that they still pitch and live in today. They choose to live there. In fact, here's a very interesting picture that I took in Bethel. In the background, you see the cities. That's the city of Bethel. But in the foreground, you see the tents of the Bedouin Arabs who would rather live there with the freedom this lifestyle offers them than in the cities. Our driver was also a Bedouin Arab. They can maneuver those giant buses around curves that I probably couldn't get my little Nissan around. We, we frequently would not look over the edge as he was driving up because. Who knew? But uh, he was telling us that the Israeli army actually makes use of these Bedouin Arabs. They like living there in the land of Israel because unlike some of the other lands, they have more freedom there. They have the freedom to live this kind of lifestyle without oppressive governments telling them, no, you can't. You have to join this army and destroy these people. The Druze up in the north are kind of the same. But he said the Israeli army who use these Bedouin Arabs to track down people who enter into Israel without permission. They've got a border fence around their whole country. Most of it is electric wire with cameras. But these guys can get over it pretty quick and run away. And the Israelis can't find them. But these Bedouin Arabs can. I mean, these people who sneak into Israel, they'll get pretty tricky. They'll they'll turn their soles of their shoes around backwards. So it looks like they're running the opposite direction. So when the Israelis are trying to track them, they're heading away from them rather than towards them. But the Bedouins can look at that footprint, see where the pressure points are, and know that the shoe's on backwards. They're running the other direction. So they rake the ground around the border so that these Bedouins can more easily see the imprints in the ground. And they said they have almost a 100% success rate with these Bedouin Arabs. This is the land that they live in. It does not belong to them, but they know it well. They know it very well. So, while that's not necessarily a compliment to be a wild donkey of a man, we see some talent, some skill. This truly does become who they are. But we also see this prophecy, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Now notice there are two sides to this coin. It does not just say that his hand will be against everyone. He is not just going to be a warmonger, but wars will also find him. Conflict will find him constantly, too. And throughout the ages, the Middle East has always been a tumultu- tumultuous plot of land. This is the land of the Bedouin Arab. This is the wars for the promised land in the first few centuries after Christ. This is an artist rendering of it. Wars in Turkey. Wars in India, where they were mercenaries. They found war. It wasn't even their own. They're not the only people who do this. But their entire history is marked by warfare. Even today. Some of the most dangerous places to be is in the land that these people live. And like I said, it's not just them going out and finding conflict. Conflict also finds them. It's just who they are as a people. This was a prophecy that God told us 4,000 years ago. Conflict will mark their very existence. But he says he will live to the east or against all of his brothers. The Hebrew in this entire passage is very difficult. I didn't even get to these slides until last night. Because this was almost impossible to translate, especially for someone who is not a very talented Hebrew scholar. But the east is nowhere in this passage, the word east. And so I don't think it would be proper to connect this with things like Cain going off and living in the east, or Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden and living to the east. Because Moses is usually pretty specific. He'll use that term east to indicate departing for a poorer life. Here, it just says that they will live against, they will live facing against their brothers. And this does have two aspects to it, one metaphorical and one very literal. An eastward direction may be part of the idea, because they will live next to, facing their brothers who are butted against the Mediterranean Sea. The only direction they could live facing them is to the east. But also, and probably more the idea here, is that they will live against their brothers. Most of their conflict will be had with their brothers. Now, this Ishmaelite will have two brothers. His brother, Isaac, who's a half-brother, and his brethren, my nation, the Egyptians. In Genesis 25, 17, when we come back to the line of Ishmael, in fact, we get a few verses that's just dedicated to his line. It says, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, and they settled from Havilah to Shur, right there where Hagar was met by the Lord. Abutting, remember Egypt, which is east of Egypt as one goes toward Assyria. Now, the translators borrow this term here, east, from this passage and put it into 16 to make sense of the Hebrew, because as I said, the Hebrew is very hard to understand there. But it also says he settled in defiance of all of his relatives, not in peace, not in harmony. And we'll see this as well when we get to the story of Isaac. We'll see these conflicts between Ishmael and And Isaac's descendants. And we'll see that the settling truly is in defiance of one another. Moving on to Hagar's response. God's given her a lot of promises here. He's also given her a very hard command to return to Sarai. Now, there's two possible responses. No, I'd rather go back to Egypt if she's focusing on the command that God gave her and the difficulty of it. But rather, she chooses to depend and to focus on the promise of God. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees, for she said, have I ever or have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Now we're going to mess with this translation a bit, but... Notice what she says here, it says she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God who sees. Now in Genesis twelve eight, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Sounds very similar, just one word being different. And what we recognize is he knows who the Lord is and he uses that name to call on him. But that's not what we see here. Hagar does not call upon the name of the Lord. She calls the name of the Lord. You are God who sees. In case this isn't clear enough, in verse 15, part B, Abram is going to name his child, Ishmael. The structure is exactly the same. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Elroy. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. God tells Hagar, name your son, God hears. She does this, but she says, God, your name is, God sees me. This is the only person in all of the scriptural record who gives a name to God. This is an incredibly intimate scene. We don't know whether or not this is well-received, Does she have the right to name God? Naming often has this sense of domination. You name what belongs to you. You name what you possess, what you have ownership over. But I think God sees, and I think we can clearly see here as well, Hagar is not dominating God by naming him. She's recognizing his work, his character, who he is. It's not good enough that she has a memory of God hearing her affliction. She wants a memory as well, to be reminded of constantly, not only has God heard her, but God saw her. God met her where she was, and he appeared to her in the angel of the Lord. So she calls him, you are a God who sees me. That is El, God, Ra, sees, and this I at the end is me. So, in case you're wondering, the only name that a man has ever given to God is Elroy. I think that's kind of interesting. We've got Elroy and Ishmael in these two passages God sees me and God hears me. If you're thinking of a good name for your kid, Elroy is probably pretty good. Now, this says in the NASB Have I even remained alive here? After seeing him. Once again, this is a translation according to sense, not the literal meaning of the passage. I'm not saying it's a bad translation, but it is an interpretive translation. They have interpreted this because of passages, such as in Exodus 33, where God says, You can't see me and live. And so the idea that the NASB has put in here is that she's surprised to have seen God and not be killed. Manoah, the father of Samson, has the same surprise when he encounters God and he is surprised that he is still alive. But Hagar doesn't yet have this experience with this God. She doesn't know that the presence of this God could kill her. She may sense this from being in his presence. But it doesn't seem that that is what is going on here in this passage, especially because We have to twist the Hebrew in order to get there. I think the simplest sense of this is, have I really looked upon the one who sees me? It's her surprise. It's her shock and her amazement. Not only does he see her, but she can see him. This is a God unlike any God she has ever heard of. And I think this bears out as well because when she named, or when she names the well where God meets her, she says, this is the well of the living one who sees me. The living one is a special term used for God in comparison to the dead gods of the pagans, the gods who do not live, the gods who cannot appear and speak to people. This is a God that she did not know in Egypt. This is a God that she has met through her abusers of all people. But this is a God who has come down to meet her individually and has spoken to her and has promised her what man promised and failed to give. And so she names God, God sees me. And then she names the well, the well of the living one who sees me. And it is between Kadesh and Bered. Bered is probably on the border of Egypt. We don't really know where exactly it is. But this seems to be the sense of the passage. She is somewhere on the way of Shur, which goes across the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, and Kadesh is pretty far in the east. Well, now we get to the birth of Ishmael. The promise that God gave her is fulfilled here very quickly. Hagar bore Abram a son. Hagar did not bear Abram and Sarai a son. She bore Abram a son. Remember, Sarai would have to adopt this child formally. Sarai rejects him. She does not want him. Remember in verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will obtain children through her. Does Sarai's plot work? No. She does not bear children through Hagar. Abram receives an illegitimate child. Through Hagar, Actually, he's not even illegitimate because part of Sarai's plan is for Abram to marry Hagar in addition to her so that the son can be a descendant of Abram. So she's despised her marriage. She's despised God's promise. And she's really the one who bears the brunt of the consequences here. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. God told Hagar to name the son Ishmael. Hagar is not the one who does the naming because Abram has the right to name his son. But Abram is faithful to the report that Hagar gave him to name Ishmael God hears. And at this point, Abram is 86 years old when Hagar bears Ishmael to him. 86 is pretty old to become a father for the first time. Next time we meet Abram at the beginning of Genesis 17, Ishmael is still his only son. He has not had a son by Sarai, but now he is 99 years old, 13 years later. Last time God was silent for a time. It was about 10 years. God is silent here, at least according to Revelation. For 13 years, after this, but then God is going to intervene once again. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and here is where he will begin to promise to him the fulfillment of the promise that sent him into the land of promise in the first place, the promise of a descendant through Sarai. And in fact, in chapter 17, because Abram and Sarai just seem to not get it. Not only is God going to say this one will come through the body of Abram, but he'll say this one will come through the body of Sarai as well. I do think it's interesting that one of the most intimate scenes we've seen between an individual and God yet has been between God and a Gentile, has been between God and one who is not a direct recipient, but an adjacent recipient to the promise given to Abram. All of us, as members of the church, unless for some reason we're also Jewish, which I don't think any of us are Jewish here. We are all adjacent recipients to this Messiah. He did not come through our line. He is not a brother according to the flesh by race or nation, but he is our savior. He is our kinsman redeemer. Because although Hagar is not a child of Abram or from the line of Abram. She is a child of Adam. And Jesus came in the flesh, the same flesh that Adam bore, in order to save the whole world. The difference for Israel is God had a purpose for the Savior to come through them and not through Hagar. God is faithful to all of his promises and God has a purpose for all of his people. Some will choose, many will choose to reject God, far too many, but that does not mean that God has not cared for and given them every opportunity to to receive the blessing of the Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your love and intimacy with us. We recognize that it was we who walked away from you in the garden. And as we all stand in Adam through our natural birth, we need a savior. We thank you that you have worked through history in order to provide that savior, and that having provided that savior, he has been given to the whole world. That we may all have hope in the salvation of Jesus Christ, that we would receive it on the basis of grace through faith alone. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.